0: Welcome to opening convocation. You may be seated. (laughs) We are so glad you are here. It is so great to be with you as we we begin another year at Carleton. My name is Skylar Vogel. I am your new college chaplain. It is a great honor to be with you, especially since 16 years ago I was up there with the bubbles blowing on everyone, and uh, it uh, feels great to be back uh, on this side. It's a special privilege to come back to a place that feels like home. I return to the grace of the search committee and President Byerly, but also because I believe in what Carleton is and what it represents. Talking about Carleton is not easy. It wasn't when I was a student, and it isn't now either. It's hard to avoid tropes. Using the word quirky feels mandatory, at least once. And it's easy to sound insincere, saying what everyone expects a college official to say. But what I've learned since graduating is that such language when it comes to Carleton is not just saccharine school spirit. Most of us here know that the world is a difficult place. It can be frightening and sad. It can be hurtful and disappointing. The news reminds us of this daily, and no person, no matter how blessed, makes it through life without scars. So I found that the world needs places like Carleton. It needs places that shows us that even with the hardness of the world there is goodness and hope too. We need places that remind us of kindness, of curiosity, of justice, of beauty, and that they exert their own special and potent power. I'm inspired by the writer Adrian Marie Brown, who wrote that life is an invitation to practice the world we wish to see. At Carleton, I believe we receive two gifts. One, the tools to bring our values to life. And two, the enduring belief that such a world is even possible because we see the roots of it here first. We hear a lot about values at Carleton. And our values are not just talk, nor should they be. They are calls to reflection, to conversation, and action. We are accountable to each other to ensure that Carleton lives into its best self. Now we see these values everywhere. We see them in the growing commitment to indigenous Minnesotans and indigenous students. This has life in our land acknowledgement, which is said at the beginning of all major gatherings and is found in your bulletin. It states this, we stand on the homelands of the Wapakute and Midiwakanton bands of the Dakota Nation. We honor with gratitude the people who've stewarded the lands through generations and their ongoing contributions to this region. We acknowledge the ongoing injustices that we have committed against the Dakota Nation and wish to interrupt this legacy, beginning with acts of healing, and honest storytelling about this place. We see Carleton's values elsewhere. In our decision, for example, two weeks ago to end legacy admissions. We see it in the decision earlier this year to divest our endowment from fossil fuels. We see it in the unequivocal commitment to student diversity in the face of Supreme Court striking down affirmative action and in the permanent hanging of a pride flag in the chapel for the very first time. And we see Carlton's values in our reverence for human life, like today, as we hold space for the anniversary of September 11th, and for those in Morocco in the aftermath of the terrible earthquake that has claimed already so many lives. Now I know that talking about values is risky, especially today in higher education. It can be perceived as a threat to academic freedom, an essential ingredient in the search for truth. But freedom, when wielded wisely, must be paired with responsibility. Responsibility to ourselves, to each other, to the most vulnerable, to this planet. It is from the creative interplay between freedom and responsibility that our Carlton values arise. That's why here our values are not set in stone. They are constantly evolving. Truth is ever unfolding. New perspectives, new ways of being human are always being discovered and honored and lifted up. Here we are lifelong learners. Undoubtedly, we will fall short. We will make mistakes, get confused, but hopefully that will inspire humility and grace. So friends, this is what we do at Carleton. We grow together. We seek wisdom together. We care for one another. And we change the world for the better. Students, faculty, staff gathered from across the globe in this particular corner called Carleton. It is beautiful work. It is extraordinary and challenging and desperately need it. I am glad to be doing it with you once again. Thank you, and may it be so.
1: Thank you,
2: Skylar. It's wonderful to have you here. Welcome, and welcome back to all of you. It is a pleasure to see so many faculty, staff, and students here today and a special welcome, of course, to the class of 2027. Mm-hmm. Yes, from mm-hmm. the class of 2027. It was a pleasure to get to see so many of you at Night House over the weekend and learn a little bit about your backgrounds and interests. Um, I enjoyed hearing about all of the talents that were on display at the variety show on Saturday night. There was opera singing, there was juggling, and there were some strange noises that people did replicate for me. So I got a sense that there were some really hidden talents uh, among the class of twenty twenty seven. Um, it's wonderful to have you all here. Today's convocation is part of a long-standing tradition that is one of Carleton's most distinctive features. The word convocation stems from the Latin word convocare, to call together, which combines the prefix com, meaning together, and vocare, meaning to call. Thus, the word embodies not only the idea of togetherness, but the importance of bringing different voices together. Many colleges open the year with a ceremonial convocation that provides an opportunity for students, faculty, and staff to gather and reflect upon their shared commitment to academic inquiry and community. At Carleton, however, convocation is a weekly occurrence. We set aside time in the college calendar every Friday to create opportunities for the entire community to gather and hear a talk or program that provides a shared basis for intellectual exchange and ongoing dialogue. Carleton's continuing commitment to creating this shared space for discussion is a core aspect of our identity as a place that values open intellectual inquiry and robust debate. These qualities are fundamental to any academic community and are a crucial component of what we mean when we talk about a liberal arts education of the kind we offer at Carleton. A liberal arts education invites you to study many different different disciplines and contrast their very ways of looking at the world. When you learn across disciplines, you see that the same issue looks quite different through the lenses of varied modes of inquiry. When considering the impact of artificial intelligence, for example, A computer scientist's interest in mapping advances in natural language processing will be different from an economist's questions about how AI might disrupt the labor market. When examining the issue of climate change, a chemist might look at changes in ocean chemistry in the Arctic as a result of melting ice, while a sociologist focuses on the effect of weather disasters on vulnerable populations. At the same time, at Carleton, The faculty who teach these fields are in constant dialogue with each other and will encourage you to see the connections among and between these disciplines. Moreover, within any field of study, you'll see different, often opposing perspectives on an issue. You'll find that faculty are deliberate in their effort to highlight these oppositions, even when it means offering interpretations that may differ from their own. Faculty will model that openness of inquiry and they'll ask you to do the same. This means that there may be times in a classroom discussion that you find yourself defending a view that's not held by all of your classmates. It also means that there will be time that you hear others, a fellow student, a visiting speaker, or your professor, share analyses and interpretations with which you disagree, perhaps even share opinions or beliefs that you find disturbing. Your ability to listen respectfully, engage thoughtfully, and welcome the opportunity for discussion and debate is one of the most important skills that we hope you'll take with you when you graduate. It's one that's desperately needed in today's world. It's especially important that we respect the role of free inquiry within a learning environment at a time when threats to academic freedom have become a potent weapon within the current political and cultural landscape. The past year has seen unprecedented efforts in many states to control school curricula, library selections, even academic appointments, petitions to ban books in local libraries, legislation forbidding the teaching of the history of slavery, or outlawing mention of gender identity. The appointment of state college and university trustees who undermine the systems of governance that protect academic freedom. These actions pose an existential threat to the fundamental principles that distinguish education from indoctrination. Even as we deplore and resist these efforts to control what can be taught or read by those who seek to learn, it's important that we not see this as an entirely external problem. We need to be vigilant about our own practices as an educational institution, and about our own attitudes as members of this community of learning to ensure that we ourselves are willing to engage in difficult discussions and confront ideas that might disturb or offend. There are many forces, political, cultural, even technological, that encourage us to stay in our silos and listen only to familiar voices. At Carleton, we hope that being part of a diverse community of voices will help you to learn, to grow, and to become a citizen of the world who is prepared to continue listening and learning. We hope, too, that your intellectual curiosity will lead you down many unexpected pathways as you explore every corner of our curriculum. Over the past year, we've been spending time as a community discussing the future of the college and the directions we think Carleton should pursue. One theme that came through very strongly in all of our community discussions was the importance of celebrating the breadth, balance, and power of the liberal arts education we offer at Carleton. The goals and recommended actions outlined in the college's strategic plan flow from four core values that we feel are distinctive to Carleton, community, curiosity, citizenship, and impact. We hope that the priorities defined in the plan will cultivate the qualities that prepare you as students to explore, engage, and ultimately transform the world. A central goal of the plan we're designing for Carleton is ensuring that we continue to ignite and fan the spark of curiosity and spirit of experimentation that powers both your educational journey as students and the continuing growth and innovation of Carleton as an educational institution. The plan is fundamentally about ensuring an ongoing process of intentional renewal. It recognizes that excellence cannot be taken for granted, but must be cultivated and nourished. As an English professor, I can't resist closing with a metaphor. This past summer, a handsome old bur oak that grew on the slope between Bolio and Lower Lyman was finally cut down. It had been doing poorly for some time, and in spite of valiant efforts to support it, at last it had to go. Our grounds manager, Jay Stadler, saved someone from the oak so that it could be used for building or art projects and took a slice of the base in order to allow us to estimate its age. Biology professor Mark McCone's examination of the oak slice suggested that this tree easily predated the founding of the college in 1866. That means the old oak would have grown when Dakota people used this area for hunting and foraging. Passenger pigeons may have perched in its branches. Many important developments in the history of the college played out in view of the oak. The creation of Lyman Lakes and the Arboretum, the building of Good Soul Observatory, it's been an important part of Carleton for over 150 years. The writer, Aldo Leopold, in his essay, Good Oak from a Sand County Almanac, contemplates the history experienced by an oak that he cut down on his Wisconsin farm. While he mourns its passing, he notes that the seeds of its replacement had already sprouted around it with, quote, a dozen of its progeny standing straight and stalwart on the sands, ready to take over the job of woodmaking. At Carlton, we cherish the traditions and structures that have grown up like that old oak over many generations. At the same time, we understand that these structures must evolve over time and that our enduring goals and aspirations will take on new life in new forms. We have to be ready to plant the seeds of our future today. I believe that one of Carleton's greatest strengths, in fact, is the energy we devote as a community to change, improvement, and renewal. As a college, we try to model the habit of lifelong learning and growth that we seek to inspire in you, our students. I am so delighted to welcome our newest class to join us on this journey of growth and transformation. And I'm deeply grateful to our faculty and staff for making this journey possible. Best wishes to all of you for a wonderful start to the year ahead. Thank you. Now it's my honor to introduce our opening convocation speaker, historian, author, and educator, Dr. Kelly Carter Jackson. Oh. It's a special pleasure for me to welcome a distinguished guest from my own alma mater, Wellesley College, where Dr. Carter Jackson is the Michael and Denise Kellen Associate Professor in the Department of Africana Studies. Carter Jackson's research focuses on slavery and the abolitionists, violence as political discourse, historical film, and black women's history. Dr. Carter Jackson is the author of the award-winning book Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence, which won the Shear James H. Broussard Best First Book Prize. The work was also a finalist for the Frederick Douglass Book Prize and the Museum of African American History Stone Book Prize and listed among 13 books to read on African American history by the Washington Post. Her essays have been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, the Atlantic, The Guardian, the Los Angeles Times, NPR, and more. Carter Jackson is also historian in residence for the Museum of African American History in Boston, and a commissioner for the Massachusetts Historical Commission. Dr. Carter Jackson co-hosts the podcast, This Day in Esoteric Political History, and hosts Oprah Demick's The Study of the Queen of Talk, by Radiotopia. Most recently, Dr. Carter Jackson has spoken out on the importance of academic freedom. In an opinion piece published in May, Why Historians Like Me Are Taking on Ron DeSantis, Dr. Carter Jackson wrote, not being able to discuss topics fully and accurately, such as slavery, segregation, genocide, or the Holocaust in the classroom, is not only wrong, it's dangerous. Such a stance promotes an erasure of the most grievous moments in history, moments that hold painful and invaluable lessons. She notes that it's critical that, quote, scholars, educators, teachers, and those in solidarity use their voices to speak out to keep these histories alive and present in American minds, unquote. Her own work is just such an example of giving life to histories and stories that might otherwise be forgotten or erased. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Kelly Carter Jackson to Carleton.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) I am so, so deeply honored. Thank you, President Byerly. My president, Paula Johnson, sends her regards from Mosley College. Um, It is so good to be here before all of you, to the faculty and staff and students. Thank you so much to the incoming class of 2027 and the outgoing class of 2024. I'm delighted to be with all of you today. Um, today feels very familiar for me. I used to live in North Dakota, Grand Forks, North Dakota, I know. <laughs> it's wild. Um, and I used to go to Fargo for a good time in Minneapolis. <laughs> if I really wanted to get wild, I'd go to Minneapolis. Um, but it was always a good time, it was always a good time. And so living in that area, living in the Midwest, I'm a, a child of the Midwest, I was born in Detroit, I was raised in Illinois, and so all of this feels very familiar to me and it feels like being at home. And so thank you so much for that. Um, today, I wanna let you know that I am a historian, but if you take away all of my degrees, I am pretty much a storyteller. I love telling stories, I love hearing stories. I think that stories can inform, but that stories can also empower. And during the hard times, I rely on the past to direct me toward possible paths. And I don't know about you, but these past several years have felt like hard times. I worry about my health. I worry about the country's political landscape. I worry about rights that have been taken away. I worry about gun violence. I worry about fires. I worry about droughts. I can barely watch the news. I certainly have considered dropping Twitter or X altogether. I worry mostly that progress is further away than I had hoped. But today, I don't wanna talk about the state of the world. I don't wanna harp on doom and gloom. Today, I wanna give you two tools. Tools that I think have been some of the greatest tools in my kit that have served me well in terms of my survival and navigating and even thriving in the world around me. I wanna talk about refusal and I wanna talk about joy. And in order to do that, I need to tell a story. So when my grandmother, my great-grandmother, Ernesta was nine years old, she stepped on a rusty nail. And not long after infection set in, she likely contracted tetanus, a serious bacterial infection that causes painful muscle spasms and can lead to death if untreated. Her mother, Mary Bullard, was frantic. Ernesto was her only child, and she was gonna lose her if she did not act fast. So Mary sent Ernesta to the only doctor she knew, a white man that lived in a big house on the other side of town. The white doctor offered to help, but in exchange, Ernesto would have to live with him for the rest of her life, working for his family. Growing up black and a girl in 1915 left her vulnerable. In rural Alabama during one of the worst periods of race relations in America, these were the detestable but predictable terms of engagement. Mary was panic-stricken and not wanting to lose her daughter to death, she agreed. But thankfully, Ernesta's grandmother, a former slave, intervened and refused the doctor's proposal. She picked up her ailing granddaughter and took her home. There, she administered every natural remedy at her disposal. Ernesta survived, but for the rest of her life, she walked with a limp. Whatever space she entered, whatever path she took, she was marked by a violent racial imprint. My mother told me this story as a child because she wanted to explain to me my great-grandmother's limp. But it was not until I was an adult that I realized just how that rusty nail was not the root of her trauma. This story has always gripped me for a couple of reasons. First, because Ernesto was a child, and her mother's only child. How could a doctor refuse a dying child medical care when it was in his ability to heal her? He had abandoned the cornerstone of his work embodied in the words, first do no harm. Second, 50 years out of slavery, white folks still felt entitled to black labor in life in perpetuity. Clearly, everything was transactional to this white doctor. Built into the deal was a lifetime of servitude and likely physical and sexual abuse. Sometimes I think white supremacy in America can be summed up in these two diabolical options. Live a life in bondage or refuse and limp. To be black in America is to live life with a limp. My great-grandmother's outcome had nothing to do with biology and everything to do with power, the power of the white doctor to neglect and to attempt to exploit a little black girl who came to him for help. But this speech is not about the white doctor or people like him. In many ways, this speech is about my great-great-great-grandmother's response, her refusal Refusal is a forceful no. It is a no that is packed full of energy and meaning. We refuse is similar to black colloquiums such as nah, or nope, or not today, Satan. <laughs> Or my personal favorite, oh, hell no. (laughs) Can I say that in a church? I hope so. (laughs) Refusal sets the terms for how humanity should be understood and treated. It is a barrier that prevents oppressed people from being consumed. Refusal can be enacted by an individual, but at its heart, refusal is collective which is why the sentiment behind the phrase, we refuse, persists among subjugated people and is a key refrain in black feminist politics as well as native politics. American history is made up of examples of people who refused violence, theft, mockery, or second-class citizenship. This summer, I took my first trip to Ghana and I traveled to the Gold Coast to visit Elmina, one of the largest slave dungeons built by the Portuguese. And on the wall, just adjacent to a cell in which they kept rebellious slaves that they left to die a slow death, is a plaque. And on it, it reads, quote, we are the children of those who refused to die. We are the children of those who refused to die. So yes, black Americans are the descendants of African warriors and soldiers, but of also ordinary African commoners who refuse to be bound, broken, and dehumanized. And since the 17th century, America has really been the story of black refusal. Black history has told the stories of slave ships that left the coast of Africa for a new world and black people who refused to die, and some people who even forfeited their lives because they refused to live in the conditions created by their white captors. In the 17th century, Queen Anna and Jinga of the Kingdom of Congo, which is present-day Angola, refused the terms and broken treaties of the Portuguese and fought for decades against the enslavement of her people. In the 18th century, people like Elizabeth Freeman, who upon hearing the Declaration of the Independence read out loud, she refused to be denied her right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. As an enslaved person living in Massachusetts, she took to the courts and sued for her freedom and won. In the 19th century, Nat Turner's rebellion in 1831 was a collective refusal. During the uprising, enslaved people killed nearly 60 white men, women, and children. They killed their enslavers, because they refused to be kept in bondage. They killed white children because they refused to let them perpetuate the system by growing up to become slaveholders. Enslaved people refused to be enslaved, even when their efforts failed. Refusal is black culture. It is our anthem, a mantra, a way of being. Refusal is persistent in the novelty and genius of our vernacular, or in the newspapers and literature we created to tell our stories. In the drum, the banjo, and the bass that permeates our music. In the vocals that refuse to be timid, diluted, or replicated. It is present also in our willingness to welcome, forgive, be hospitable, and um, and care. Refusal is also about truth telling. And I think this is important because right now we're in a moment where we need to bust a lot of myths. These myths are the following, that we are not going to run out of homes if everyone has a house. We will not run out of jobs if everyone is properly educated. Homelessness is not required. Failing schools are not necessary. Voting in a democracy is not a privilege, but a primary feature. Mass incarceration is not merely unfortunate. Voting, like I said, um, refusal essentially calls BS on artificial shortages, white fears, good intentions, hysteria, and conspiracy theories. On your college journey, we can refuse lies and resist the status quo. Together, headed in a new direction, we will walk and run and limp or even skip toward the light. Because refusal for me is also a key component to joy. Yes, joy. I see joy as one of the most potent revolutionary work or tools toward liberation. Joy is the ultimate expression of humanity. Author Toni Morrison once said, finally in this long trek through 300 years of black life, there was joy, which is what I mostly remember. The part of our lives that was neither spent on our knees nor hanging from trees. The bulk of black life is made from joy. And joy is not the denial of pain or trauma or death, but the hope that comes from activism, resistance and refusal joy is a haven there are ways in which people have carved out maroon societies to experience joy that cannot be stolen joy is often defined too by the black church scripture and gospel songs remind its readers and its listeners that joy is not stumbled upon joy is not an immediate outcome however joy is lasting and persists in the midst of hardship a constant refrain in the black church is the biblical scripture of Psalms 30, verse 5. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Again, joy is not certain. It's not instant, but it is certain. I remember growing up listening to the Georgia Mass Choir and Dorothy Anderson and Kirk Franklin would bellow out the lyrics, joy, joy, God's great joy. Did Anybody know a song? <laughs> joy, joy down in my soul. And the rest of the words would say like, sweet, beautiful, soul-saving joy. There was a whole like anthem. It was a bop. It was really good. (laughs) I won't go into all the lyrics. But joy, when I hear that song, when I hear that sort of like the rhythm and the beat of that song, I'm reminded that joy is an exhortation, that it was the -the dependable among trying times, that love, hope, humor, and pleasure were all a part of joy. The laughter of joy, food, dance, dress, adornment, rhetoric, play, art can be employed to dispel and destroy lies, erasure, harm, and violence. Joy produces the antidote to the degradation and erosion brought on by racism, sexism, classism, or homophobia. Joy can be bold or joy can be benign. Joy can be seeing Queen Bee on tour decked out in silver for Beyoncé's birthday. I know I wanted to be there. (laughs) Or Joy can be, you know, screaming your head off to her lyrics. Joy can be buying a ticket to see Barbie instead of Oppenheimer. Just saying. Mm -hmm. Joy can be roller skating, it can be fishing, it can be singing or teasing or shearing or resting or vacationing or getting dressed up or birthdays or reading a good book. If it compels joy, then it does the work of fighting injustice. Sometimes though, joy can be confusing to people. In 2020, scholar Imani Perry brilliantly wrote about the meaning of black joy among massive protests sweeping across the country. Protesters would march and chant and then somewhat organically burst into song and dance. She argued, quote, American racism is unquestionably rapacious. The masters were wrong in the antebellum South when they described the body-shaking, delighted chuckle of an enslaved person as simple-mindedness. No, that laugh, like our music, like our language, like our movement, was a testimony that refused the terms of our degradation. In the footage of the protests, we have seen black people dancing, chanting, and singing. Do not misunderstand. This is not the absence of grief or rage or distraction. It is insistence. To refuse the terms of our degradation is a masterclass that nearly every marginalized person can teach. Some of the most potent examples of joy as refusal come from slavery. To be clear though, joy is not Justice. Joy is the collective rescue in dire times. It is the reassuring, you're okay, you're okay, by loved ones or even strangers who have, know how to under, understand how to triage the blow of depression, anxiety, poverty, illness, assault, or loss. College students and young people need reminders that they are not crazy and nothing is wrong with you. When Zerona Hurston discussed her identity, she refused to see blackness as a problem, as a thing that needed to be fixed or altered. She said, I am not tragically colored. She confessed to not having time for self-loathing. She said, quote, I'm too busy sharpening my oyster knife. Joy rejects, neglects, and even mocks feelings of inferiority. So this academic year, I want you to refuse to be distracted. I return to Toni Morrison again for her brilliance always. Morrison has the best quotes. Uh, And she says this one, which is a true banger. She says, racism is a distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. Someone says you have no language and you spend 20 years proving you do. Someone says your head is not shape properly, so you have scientists working on the fact that it is. Someone says you have no art, so you dredge that up. Somebody says you have no kingdoms, so you dredge that up. None of this is necessary, end quote. Refuse to be distracted. Focus purely on the joy that comes from language and science and art and imagination. The saying has become cliche, we laugh to keep from crying, but I think... That laughter comes from within because something such as racism at face value is absurd. Beyond the major laws such as bans against interracial marriage and integrated public schools, nearly all of American life from the 17th century forward delineated laws to empower whiteness and disadvantage blackness. In court, black people could not testify or serve on jury. All forms of transportation, restaurants, hotels, or recreation were segregated. Even in death, burial sites were relegated. A white person could not be buried next to a black person. In 1889, North Carolina had laws in the books that said, books shall not be interchangeable between white and colored schools. In 1914, Kentucky had a law that said all circus shows and tent exhibitions were required to provide two ticket offices with individual ticket sellers and two entrances for the performance of each race. Birmingham, Alabama had laws on utter minutiae. Black people were not allowed to play checkers with white people. I have no idea where that law came from. When people attempted to vote in the South before the Voting Rights Act, officials would ask impossible questions, impossible questions. For example, the Registrar's Office in Mississippi would ask, in order to vote, how many bubbles are in a bar of soap? How many bubbles are in a bar of soap? At face value, friends, racism is ridiculous. There is a black artist by the name of Glenn Ligon, who conducted an experiment in which he posted two life-size and identical self-portraits of himself. Under one portrait, he captioned it, self-portrait exaggerating my black features, and in the other, he titled it, self-portrait exaggerating my white features. One by one, spectators viewed the two pieces side by side and noted how, in one, his nose was slightly wider in one portrait than the other, or that his lips were slightly thinner in one portrait than the other. Again, the images were identical, but people had convinced themselves that they were seeing two different aspects of his racial features. It was comical. But racial ideologies do not need to be plausible or rational to be persuasive to outsiders. Race and racism work well when insiders program others to make sense of the things they see and do routinely and repetitively on a daily basis. Many will remember the viral footage of the brawl that took place in Alabama and Montgomery River dot last month. And if you missed this Twitter explosion, you missed a real treat. A black co-captain was attacked by several white men who refused to abide by his instructions to move their boat. The white attackers shoved the black man and began to overwhelm him. In minutes, dozens of surrounding black men and women joined in the fight to help the co-captain by jumping on the white assailants and landing blows, including one 16-year-old who jumped from a boat, swam to the dock, pulled his wet body up for the waters, and promptly body-slammed an attacker. Another black man swelled a folding chair at white attackers to fend them off from harming more people. Within hours, the internet exploded with horror and rage, and then very quickly with gifts and jokes and reenactments and memes and even merch to celebrate the black resistance to white violence. One white man was dragged to the point where his Crocs became socks. My personal favorites were Fade in the Water, or referring to the 16-year-old as Malcolm Phelps and Aquaman, and a quote by Shirley Chisholm that all of a sudden resurfaced that said, if, you don't, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. I love that one. <laughs> Collectively, both in person and virtually, black people were refusing the violent treatment of white voters. Black people rejected ill-treatment. They protected each other. They used force to stop their attackers. They ran toward trouble. And they celebrated and laughed and memorialized Black refusal with relentless joy and mockery. Poking fun robs whiteness of its legitimacy. Humor undoes the authority of white supremacy. It reveals its irrationality. The lessons of refusal and joy were bound up on that Alabama dock. The initial response to an altercation like Montgomery is anger, and don't dismiss this. Theologian James Cone contended that anger and humor are like the left and right arm. They complement each other. He says anger empowers the poor to declare their uncompromising opposition to oppression, and humor prevents them from being consumed by their fury. You may be thinking about the state of the world and the state of politics and the state of our climate and environment, the state of our prisons, the state of our educational system, and you might be angry. You should be. But anger is useful. Audre Lord argued that anger prevents you from being stagnant and resigned. Anger is the engine of refusal. But our anger should never be left alone. It must be tethered to hope and hope is tethered to joy and hope and joy stem from a place of purpose and promise. Wendell Berry, who is a writer and a farmer and environmental activist, argues that when it comes to fixing societal problems, he says that people often want solutions as large scale as the problem, but rarely can any major problem be solved in this way. Instead, he suggested what is needed is countless small solutions that can chip away at core issues. But small interpersonal solutions do not satisfy America's needs for drama, fame, or credit. And at a surface level, refusal and joy can feel inadequate. At best, it can feel dismissive or worse, like salt to a wound. But refusal is not a simple declaration. It is a verb Moreover, joy is not mere optimism. It is a conviction that nothing big or small can be tackled without first believing it is possible. Students, my friends, you do not have to swallow the ocean or build a city in a day. Not everything has to be complicated. As you take your classes and prepare for lives of leadership and service, Think about the small but powerful ways you can refuse or find joy to combat violent systems. I'm gonna close with one more story, a personal one. I am raising three beautiful, black, free children. And my oldest daughter, Josephine, is six years old. And Josephine has one of the most infectious and delicious laughs. And one day, I found her in my room Recording herself on my cell phone while she was singing along to Disney's Encanto (laughs) She was belting her heart out with all of the intonation to Mirabelle's Waiting on a Miracle That song's a bop if you don't know it (laughs) As I looked for my phone, I realized she had it and I said, Jojo, what are you doing? Give me my phone, please She handed it over to me, but first she wanted to see the video that she had just finished recording And so I hit play And together we listened to her rendition She's unseen behind the camera, and the film plays out sort of shakily on my phone. She sings every word verbatim, but when it comes to the high note, she misses it by a mile. (laughs) By a mile, like she is way off. But in her earnest, this is her moment of shine. She is like going for it. And when she starts to hit that note, we both look at each other simultaneously and we burst into laughter. We fling our heads back, we open our mouths wide, and we holler with laughter. It was pure joy and simple pleasure listening to her scream out this note. What does this moment have to do with white supremacy? Nothing. That's the point, <laughs> that, is, that is the whole point. I fight to have these moments make up the bulk of my day. Our laughter was both a remedy and a reminder that joy can be anything. Listen, I want a revolution. I wanna be protected and safe. I wanna belong, but mostly I just want to be. I wanna be like Zora Neale Hurston, too busy sharpening my oyster knife, too busy making laughter. I'm raising my children to know freedom and joy and refusal. I want them to take these tools with them to fortify them and to heal themselves and others. I'm teaching them to send joy and laughter and a strong, oh hell no, back out into the hostile world. I hope you will do the same. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Dr. Jackson. Thank you very much, Dr. Carter Jackson. I'm happy to now invite Provost Michelle Matson to describe some student honors.
3: Welcome to the academic year, 23, 24. I had to think about that for a moment, getting lost in time. Um, This is a a really wonderful moment where we get to um, acknowledge some achievements, um, academic achievements among our students. Um, And by tradition, Carleton generally recognizes and honors student accomplishments and awards at the spring honors convocation. So don't forget about that one too. It provides us, as a learning community, a wonderful opportunity to celebrate the accomplishments of many. The one exception to this practice is the Dean's List, which is always announced at the opening convocation of the new year. The Dean's List, a nationally recognized designation of academic accomplishments, is a very appropriate exception to our practice of honoring both academic and community engagement achievements in the spring. The Dean's List recognizes those students whose annual grade point average puts them within the top 10% of their class for the previous year. It is based on the GPA earned in academic work over the three terms of the academic year for which it is awarded. It offers recognition for superior academic achievement in the year just completed and begins each year anew with a clean slate, new opportunities, and a new beginning. Students whose academic achievements earn them a place on the Dean's List for the 2022-2023 academic year are named in your program. Will those of you who are named please stand up so that the rest of us can offer you our enthusiastic congratulations.
0: Friends, as we end our time together, let us remember that this is not just a college but a community. Remember that we are here to learn and grow together. We nurture lives of curiosity and passion, and we make the world a better place. Here we find places of refusal. Refusal to be distracted, refusal to fall into despair, to be defined by the expectations and biases of others. Look this year for where you can refuse. This is also a place of joy. Look for those ways that joy can lift you up, give you hope, just be. We do all of this not out of some obligation, but because this is the way we should be, because of some ineffable reverence for ourselves for each other in the universe that we inhabit because we love this world and we find it beautiful and fascinating and worth saving because we care about one another because we know what joy feels like and laughter and longing and wonder and what it might feel like to be free so come Join us in this adventure that is learning to be human together. Come, join us in making this life better for everyone. It is a great gift to be. To be, as Mary Oliver writes, living this one wild and precious life together. May we rejoice today and be glad.
2: Thank you. As we end our program today, I'm pleased to introduce Director Matthew Olson and the Carlton Choir to lead us in the singing of the alma mater. They'll sing it through once, and then we'll all join them for the second time. Following the alma mater, please remain standing at your seats for the recessional. Thank you all for being here today.